And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Father Paul Mueller, is a co-author of Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? And other questions from the astronomer's inbox at the Vatican Observatory. Father Paul uh, serves at the Vatican Observatory in Tucson, Arizona, where he's on the research staff and uh, is religious superior of the Jesuit community there. You can take a look at the work of the Vatican Observatory at vaticanobservatory.ba. Father, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you. The The one slight correction I'll make is I spend most of my time in Italy, actually, at the observatory oh. headquarters at Castel Gandolfo, but I do spend <laughs> part of my time at Tucson at our gotcha. secondary location. Very good. I was wondering about that. Okay. And that's at Castle Gandolfo. Okay. Yeah, the Pope's summer vacation home, which right. Francis, Pope Francis doesn't use, but um, <laughs> previous popes have used, and that's we have two telescopes on top of his vacation home. <laughs> that's great. Well, in fact, let's start with that. Let's start with that. I think most people are probably surprised to learn that the Vatican uh, maintains observatories uh, in Castle Gandolfo and also in Tucson. Why? You know, it's a long history. I'll start with, forgive me for my, my bad jokes, but when people come to visit us, they always say, why does the Vatican have an astronomical observatory? As if there's some kind of science-faith conflict. Mm-hmm. And my joking response is always, oh, the Vatican has an observatory because we can't quite afford a particle accelerator. Um, we'd <laughs> like to have one. <laughs> but, I mean, that goes back to the 1580s when Pope Gregory was reforming the calendar the change from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, which we use even today. The observatory was founded to defend and explain the new calendar. Jesuit Father Christopher Clavius was much involved in that. But then, after that, you know, it just, the, the papacy was a royal court in its own way, and it was the normal thing for royalty in Europe in the 1600s and 1700s to have court astronomers. So the Pope, as a matter of course, hung on to um, the observatory, just because that's what royalty did, and he was a kind of royalty. But then, uh, this is a long answer, I'll, I'll make it quick. That's okay, the, um, I like it, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the observatory actually went out of existence in 1870, when all the equipment and property was seized by Italy as part of the unification of Italy. It was refounded 21 years later, in 1891, by Pope Leo XIII, with kind of a slightly different mission. If it had been kind of the Pope's royal astronomers just doing science on behalf of the Church. Pope Leo, when he refounded it in the context of the Church being, you know, the Vatican at that time not being recognized by Italy as a country, and the Pope calling himself prisoner of the Vatican, Pope Leo refounded it with kind of a a semi-diplomatic purpose. He said explicitly he's refounding it to show the Church loves and embraces and endorses and participates in the sciences, that's what he said. But I think you could also argue that it was a way for the Vatican to assert its nationhood, because he refounded the observatory as the national observatory of the Vatican City State. Oh, interesting. At a yeah. time at a, at a time when Italy was not recognizing the Vatican City State. So uh, but that that's been our mission since eighteen ninety one mm-hmm. is to do science on behalf of the church, participate in the world of science, be with scientists, but why? Well, to show the Church loves and embraces the sciences, and, um, you know, because from our point of view, science and the Church are on the same team. They're both searching for the truth. Yep. No, I agree, and uh, it's one of the most vexing uh, 
problems uh, we face in popular conversation, and that is this idea that somehow there's this long-standing warfare between science uh, and religion, and uh, there's very little understanding of the, the medieval uh, uh, presuppositions that help fuel the scientific enterprise, uh, and there's very little awareness of how many uh, Catholics were involved in launching even some of the major disciplines. Uh, what to what do you attribute this the misunderstanding, which is so prevalent, about science and religion being in, you know, battle combat mode? Yeah, it's um, you're right. It's it's a it's a relatively modern development. Um, of course, there's you know the, the famous episode is the Galileo affair, yeah, but it's kind of right. the exception that proves that Catholics are <laughs> love the sciences because Galileo couldn't have gotten into that much trouble unless the church was really interested in science. I mean, it was exactly. just a, a huge, horrible misunderstanding. I think the modern warfare, so to speak, is centered on, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to cast blame here, but but it just because does everything's done with good intentions. But I think there's folks on the more fundamentalistic side who mm -hmm. want to see the Bible as the ground of all certainty right? and kind of think of science as a challenge to that and okay. therefore want to make sure that, um, that the Bible is somehow you know, defended against any incursion from science. But then you can have kind of a reaction against that on the part of some scientists. They become like scientific, uh, scientific fundamentalists and say, well, okay, if that's how you're going to be, then... I say science is the only ground of certainty, and your Bible is just superstition. Right. And the Catholic Church, um, you know, for since the time of Augustine, but very much reinforced by Pope John Paul II, its whole approach is the approach of unity of truth, to say that, look, um, the natural world is made by God, created by God. The book of nature is written by God, and the book of Scripture is written by God. It's the same author of both books, they cannot disagree with each other. This was said by Vatican I and reinforced by Pope Leo and all the popes ever since. Pope, there's a wonderful document from Pope Leo XIII. He says, look, if it seems to you that science and faith are in opposition to each other, first of all, they can't be, because they both come from God in the end. They can't, agree in the, they can't disagree in the end. But if it seems they're in disagreement, work hard to try and resolve it. Study hard. Pray hard. Work at it. If, if you've worked at it for a long time, you still can't resolve the apparent disagreement. First of all, you know in faith that that disagreement can't be true. And secondly, you should just suspend judgment. Don't panic. Um, right. Just suspend judgment. And I think that's real, a real wise thing. My hometown is Cincinnati, right across the river. There is a really well-intentioned thing called this, this, this Creation Museum, Discovery Museum. And it's yeah. a whole museum yeah. dedicated to showing... Uh, the, the true history of nature and not nature according to the false premises of the scientists. Yeah. It's well-intentioned. They're good people, but it's sure. not our Catholic point of view. We believe in unity of truth, and we don't think one side has to win now. That's a very, I, very good point. I've been down there uh, and years ago. It's been a while now. I interviewed Ken Ham, who's one of the driving forces for that Good people. enterprise, yeah, uh, it, no doubt they're committed to Jesus, and that's yep. that's not what's that's not what's in dispute. Um, but let's let's talk about those uh, early chapters of Genesis. Uh, they have the approach that Genesis is to be read as having uh, 
that somehow Genesis is written in such a way that we're able to uh, decipher scientific uh, predictions from it. Uh, what kind of book is Genesis uh, that we should be able to, you know, have scientific reading, a scientific reading of it? Yeah, this, this is, I think, the kind of American strain of biblical fundamentalism is, I think, a, in its own way, unknowingly, a reaction to modern science where you almost end up imitating science in your reading of Scripture. <laughs> it's, treating, it's treating Scripture as if it's supposed to be um, a scientific certainty or a kind of data giving you scientific certainty. And that's just not what the Scripture... What, 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 at least in a Catholic point of view, we've got to always remember, the Church was there... Before there was ever Scripture, our certainty is based on the witness of the Apostles, and the Scriptures were written by the Church and, and approved by the Church to help people deepen their faith, not as some kind of scientific proof of the faith, but as an aid to deepening faith. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a mistake to look to Scripture for some kind of foundational proof of faith. I mean, it should strengthen our faith and reinforce our faith, and, and we revere it. But don't treat it like it's some kind of, um, I don't know, foundational certainty, you know, word-by-word interpretation that gives you some kind of foundational certainty, because our certainty comes from the witness of the apostles, and it's our trust in that witness through the centuries handed down through the apostolic tradition. That's our certainty, I think. Yeah. I think it's a mistake to treat the Bible that way. I I, I agree. I think if you're... I mean, just think of the problems you get into uh, if you try to read Genesis as uh, sci- having uh, scientific, uh, offering scientific predictions. Science always changes, which means you're going to end up, your interpretation of Genesis is always going to be changing as well. And so right. I, I think that's actually, a, I think that's a, a really good challenge to the Church relative to modern science. I think the Church needs to be light on its feet and realize that the, the truth, the truths of the faith are eternal. They don't change, right. but our ways of expressing them change over time relative to the language of the time and the concepts of the time. So as science changes, the imagery and the concepts and the metaphors we use to understand the truths of the enduring truths of the faith can change. For, for 1,500 years, for example, for 50, one reason Galileo got in trouble, I think, for 1,500 years, people the way they illustrated the fundamental theological truth that we're at the center of God's love and attention is, oh, well, the Earth's at the center of the universe, and that illustrates that. Mm-hmm. Well, then Galileo comes along and says, well, no, the Earth's not at the center. Well, it seemed to people like he was challenging the theological truth, that we're at the center of God's love and attention. No, but he was pointing out we need to find a new way to illustrate and explain that truth, that you, you couldn't... If, if you hitch your theology too close to the science of today... When the science changes, your theology seems to be threatened. And I think we have to remember that we use the scientific imagery to explain and to illustrate the theological truths. The even more challenging example of that for Catholics, and I, I, tre- I tread carefully, I don't want to uh, upset anybody, but even transubstantiation, that was uh, a scientific way of illustrating and explaining the Eucharist. The Church has revered and enshrined transubstantiation as the privileged way to understand the Eucharist. But we have to realize that transubstantiation was a scientific term that's gone out of favor. And, you know, if you talk to a scientist now, they don't know what that means. Right. So it's, it's right. a privileged way to understand the Eucharist, 
But you've got to realize that from a scientific point of view, it's from a scientific point of view, it's not it's not even wrong anymore because that's just not a word you even use. And yet, the church has privileged it, and it is the privileged way to the Eucharist, and it makes perfect sense to us if you know our tradition. Right. But you shouldn't exactly. expect scientists to keep using that. That's right. No, very good. Father, hold it there. We'll come back and continue the conversation on the other side of the break. My guest, Father Paul Mueller, he's co-author of Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? We'll be back in just a moment. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, and with me is Father Paul Mueller, co-author of Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? And other questions from the Astronomer's Inbox at the Vatican Observatory. He does serve at the Vatican Observatory in Castle Gandolfo. Uh, he's on the research staff there and is religious superior of the Jesuit community there. Uh, Father, what did happen in the Galileo uh, case? What did the church do that got her in trouble, and what did Galileo do that got him in trouble? Boy, uh, how many weeks do we have to I talk? Know. <laughs> I know. It's, it's such it's a complicated detailed. case. And there's so many books. I'll give you my quick take. Sure, My ahead. very quick take is that um, what people have to realize is at that time, it wasn't just that Galileo proposed a scientific theory and the Church said, oh, no, we stand in judgment against that theory. It's more complicated than that. Science itself was changing at that time. The yeah. criteria science uses to say what's true or not were, in cha were changing. Galileo was helping to make them change. So Galileo was dealing with church people who were well-versed in the accepted way of doing science, but Galileo was talking to them from a kind of new way of doing science point of view, which wasn't making sense to them. And it seemed to them and in fact he did, he is, is trying to make his point, he was making theological arguments at a time during the Protestant Reformation when the Church was very sensitive to unauthorized, so to speak, people making public theological arguments, and at a time when the papacy was under threat from France and Spain. I think poor Galileo, remember also Galileo was a character a very proud person with a mouth on him who really <laughs> had a sharp wit and right. just take, take the head right off of his enemies with a sharp sword of his tongue. So I think all those things came together in a perfect storm of Galileo angered people with his sharp tongue and seemed like a threat to theological stability and like a threat to political power, and he ended up being kind of, I think, in some ways a sacrificial victim um, the church, if you could redo history, it wouldn't have happened. But, right. you can, but I can understand why and how it happened. Um, yeah. I wish it hadn't. Right. But right. Uh, that's my quick take. Sure. Um, no, that's good. And I, I think, again, it's, it, and it's been used. It's, been, its significance has been magnified by those who wanted to disc, have wanted to discredit the church over the sure. centuries. So it's, uh, it's become part of a, a black legend. Um, there's a, there's a great talk that Pope John Paul II gave to the uh, Pontifical Academy of Sciences where he talks a lot about that case. At the time, he was rehabilitating, if you will, Galileo. Right, asking, I remember. You know, apologizing. Yeah. 
and he basically made a point like I was making before about the church being light in its feet. He's saying Galileo understood better than his theological opponents that the church needed to be light on its feet with respect to the philosophical systems and scientific systems it used to explain the enduring theological truths. And Galileo got faster than his opponents that that was in flux, and he got caught in the crosshairs, in the crossfire. Yeah. Sadly. Uh how significant is the Big Bang from a theological perspective? Is, um, if people, I'll do a commercial for uh, a dear departed Jesuit of the Vatican Observatory, Father Bill Steger, died of cancer some years ago, published a series of articles on just this topic. In fact, there's, um, there's uh, a book out of Notre Dame called Creation in the God of Abraham, and Father Bill Steger has a lovely article in that book about quantum cosmology, the Big Bang, and biblical creation. That's all in case people want to read it. But I would say, look, you've got to dis distinguish between biblical creation, the theological concept of God creating out of nothing, mm -hmm. and the Big Bang. The Big Bang is a scientific theory. A scientific theory is a causal story about how the current situation or a later situation arises causally, from an earlier situation. So it's a causal story. How do you get from A to B? The Big Bang, uh, that's the Big Bang. The, the creation from nothing that God does is not that kind of story. It's a creation mm -hmm. from nothing. So there can't right. be a causal story. In fact, it's the story of how causality itself comes to be. So in, the, in, in creation from nothing, we think that's what sets the stage for science to be able to even exist and do anything, because... In the in the in creation from nothingness, God brings rationality and order and existence to things, and once that's there, you can do science. <laughs> right. So I, right. I think it's just two different orders of, cre of 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 causality. There's sort of ontological causality, God creating from nothing, and then once that's there, then you can do science. But I think there it's apples and oranges. Um, mm -hmm. You you can't even do science until you have an ordered universe in existence created from nothing by God. From uh, the standpoint of uh, astronomy, uh, astrophysics, uh, cosmology, is it possible to get behind the Big Bang? Behind in the sense of before or behind? Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's kind of two senses of behind here. One sense, one sense could be, be behind temporally, go earlier in time. Another sense is behind causally. Um, so, but I would say behind temporally, no, because we think the Big Bang is when time itself um, yeah. takes on the form that we understand it to have now. Mm -hmm. And scientifically, at least so far, we, we don't know how to push back before that. Right. Now, yeah. there might be a future scientific theory which pushes back behind what we now think of as being the initial singularity of the Big Bang. But this, the physics we have now can't do that. Mm -hmm. but, I, but I think it's a mistake to identify the initial singularity with God's creation from nothingness. Because right. the way they talk about the Big Bang is uh, the universe arose from a quantum fluctuation in the quantum vacuum. Well, it sounds weird to say this, but a quantum vacuum is not nothing. It's still something. There's something <laughs> already existing there. Right. There's got to be something to have a fluctuation in. And we think that God created from nothing. Yeah. 
No, so good. I don't. So getting the so it could we could get behind it in the sense of uh, pushing the science back further, but but in faith we believe it won't be pushing back the creation from nothingness because that's not something science can do. We think. Well, let me let me uh, let me ask you a question at the other end. Will the universe come to an end? Mm. According to modern science, yes, the universe will eventually. There's one, you know several possible trajectories. There could be heat death. Um, that's the kind of the most popular thing. The universe kind of keeps expanding and becomes a thin soup with no usable energy in the far future. And that's what science can tell us now, is the universe is headed for kind of just to wind down into a thin gruel of nothingness. Mm-hmm. We believe in faith that God will intervene before that happens. We believe in faith that uh, there will be an end of time, and God will intervene with the final judgment and the second coming of Christ before we get to that point. But that's not something science can show us. That's something that's been revealed to us um, in faith and in the apostolic witness. And I wouldn't expect science to be able to, right. to tell us that. Yeah, uh, that they don't have the means, the method uh, to really do that. I mean, it's, it's... Well, because, I mean, I think it's really important to distinguish between science, which looks from nature to say what's going to happen in nature, but our faith, and this is what really distinguishes Islam, Judaism, and, and Christianity from other faiths, is they are rooted in God's intervention in history. Right. We really believe that God has intervened in human history, and we take that intervention seriously, and our faith is based on it. Well, science can't get at Science can't say anything about specific historical events. That's not what science does. Exactly. Science talks about universal events. And you don't have science to tell you what did Aunt Margaret do at your dinner table in 1973. And we don't have science to say what happened with Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's no, it's no, I'm not critiquing science. It's just I don't, you don't look to science for that. You look to history. Our faith is an historical faith, and our faith is grounded in God's intervention in human history. Uh, the Star of Bethlehem, does it have any astronomical significance? Boy, my, my Vatican Observatory partner, Guy Consolmagno's the one you should talk to about that more than me. That's a favorite topic of his. Okay. Well, he, he and I talked about that in our book that we wrote together, and our basic way of talking about it was to say, look, um, there's the star Bethlehem obviously shows up in Scripture, so it's of theological significance to us. It matters to us theologically. But did it really happen scientifically, and if it did really happen, what was it? Well, it turns out there's all kinds of possibilities for what it might have been, and there's all kinds of possible scientific... There's more explanations than than you need, and so we're not in position now to say what happened there scientifically. Right, right. It's not contrary. I mean, there's, there's, science says nothing against there being a star of Bethlehem, but science can tell you that there was one or what it was. Science can tell you what it might have been, various possibilities. And, but uh, we see it theologically as a sign, as an important sign. That's right. Would you baptize an extraterrestrial? <laughs> <laughs> the title of that book came about because my friend, Brother Consolmagno, the director of the observatory, was doing a radio interview in England at a time when Pope Benedict was visiting there. And the interviewer, he tells me, was doing his best to back him into a corner and getting to, to sort of say something about Pope Benedict um, constraining science or something like that. And <laughs> Brother Consolmagno is good with media and just did his talking points and kept tap dancing. 
And he said, finally, in frustration, the interviewer said, would you baptize the extraterrestrial? <laughs> and Brother Consomagno spontaneously responded, only if she asks, which I think <laughs> is a great answer. I mean, you wouldn't baptize someone who's not asking to be baptized. But, but actually, this, seriously, I think that if, if, if we ever encounter intelligent extraterrestrials, the, the, the sign of whether she should be baptized, it, by the way, it will be sort of like what happened when Europeans encountered indigenous peoples unite in the, in the Americas. Mm-hmm. We've been there before. But the sign will be, do we recognize these aliens as being creatures of love? And are they asking for it? And, yeah. and to use the language of St. Ignatius, finding God in all things, um, I think the spirit of the Jesuit missionaries in, 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 on this planet was always, well, when we encounter new people who are not Christians— Yes, we want to preach the gospel to them, but we also want to look for how Christ is already present among them, perhaps in ways we have not yet seen before. We're going to learn from them. So if we meet aliens, guess what? We might learn something new about Christ and about love, even from them. Sure. Um, who knows? Yeah. It's possible. No. Uh, what happened to Pluto? Poor Pluto. Um <laughs> People get angry about Pluto. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, uh, there's, there's a funny, uh, a difficult collision of, of values there, because obviously you and I grew up with nine planets, and that's dear to us, and it right. kind of rattled our cages to have that change. The reason for the change was that astronomers, for the sake of their research, were looking in consistency in how to store and access data about celestial objects. And it turns out that Pluto, by its characteristics, has much more in common with you know, the, the smaller far-out objects than it does with the, the other eight planets. With the planets, yeah. In, yeah. in particular, they, they said, look, if you're going to be a planet, you ought to have an orbit that's circular enough that you don't cross over another planet's orbit, and you ought to have enough mass that you sweep out the mass in your orbit. And Pluto doesn't meet those criteria. Yeah, yeah. Father, thank you. Wonderful conversation. And uh, I really do appreciate it. Yeah, well, hope we can talk again. I would love it. Thank you, and God bless. Father Paul Mueller, co-author of Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? And other questions from the astronomer's inbox at the Vatican Observatory, where he works at Castle Gandolfo. I'm Al Creston.